Waste a lot of time just bullshitting with these old men. <laughs> there's a lot of them. There's an article in uh, Sailing Magazine this month about uh, it's Georgetown. I think it's someplace in the old uh, men bullshit. Yeah. Here, let's get the show in the way. October thirty first, two thousand nine. It's a lot from Pedro's show.
honor of knowing what this world is about. Watching some good friends screaming, let me out. Free tomorrow gets me higher. Pressure on people on the street. Chipping around, kick my brains on the floor. These are the days it never rains, but it pours. People on streets. for Pedro Show start off with John Coltrane Goldsboro Express and then under pressure Petra Hayden doing her acapella version sorry not very Halloweeny of tunes except anything by Bowie's kind of Halloweeny uh, it is Halloween the only day of the year we admit we wear costumes so of course it's my favorite holiday I'm in San Pedro but not in the love grotto at the pleasure point I'm here by Daniel Field at Skipper Jeff's pad. Thanks for having me aboard, Skipper Jeff. Yeah, First uh, time I've dropped anchor here. Yeah, more than welcome. And uh, he's telling me about this morning he was going to go sailing, but the crew lamed out, so he got to talking with some old guys. Yeah. And one of these cats, they call the chief. He's 81 years old. Uh, he's the second... Second engineer. On the Lane Victory, which yeah. is... A, we have a victory ship here in Pedro. You know, a lot of the wars, well, all of them except maybe the civil and the revolutionary one, fought overseas, so I guess the one with Mexico, that was neighbor war. But we needed a lot of boats because they became the highways to get all the stuff out, so they created this huge uh, like pipeline of these quickly built ships, especially in the Second War. Started off with Liberty ships and then ended up uh, kind of more... Uh, I don't know, a uh, little better version, more improved. They're the larger. Victory. Yeah. They're larger, they could go faster. Yeah. But the, the whole idea was, you know, they weren't like huge like fighting ships. This was just to get stuff over there from uh, chonies to gasoline to, uh, you know, K-rations, all kinds of stuff. It all had to be uh, brought over by boat, most of it. And uh, some of these ships, I mean, they were building them in Terminal Island, uh, the shipyard. 
I think the motors came from back east, but the record for one of them, they got one done in three days or something. Yeah. They were like jamming these things together. It was, uh, it was a musician named Henry Kaiser, guitarist. He's from the family. Kaiser, not a boat guy, I think it's aluminum, steel, some kind of metal. Well, that boat makes sense. But he got into the boat business and got into making these Econo. They had no uh, plans for them lasting that long, just enough to do the job. And the fact that the Lane Victory is still together is a testament to the people uh, volunteering to run her. A lot of them are older cats. I did, um, well, more than 10 years ago, a, a video for Contemplating the Engine Room opera, first opera, Liberty Calls with Spike Jones, and we snuck in. Well, we paid the three bucks, but we filmed down there when we were in the uh, engine room, and uh, after that in the propeller shaft room, all the way. If you've been down there, they've oh, got yeah. a wooden... Yeah. The... the the gasket, or whatever you want to call it, the fitting around the screw, is wood, and it's got some kind of a, a channel that's been, uh, it has like a thread in it, so the water won't come through, and it still can... Uh, Probably called, it's like on my little sailboat, they, it's called a packing gland, which on my boat, you know, there's a coupling in the drive shaft, and then it's... Uh, sealed with like a piece of waxy rope so uh, the drive shafts are actually meant to leak a little bit you know because uh, you know not when the ship stopped but when it's moving so it yeah, yeah. cools the friction down so People I don't know I, don't, I haven't seen I've been in the engine room I haven't seen what you're yeah I went all the way back I'm that, guessing that might be that, that uh, drive shaft yeah. is yeah. huge yeah. telephone yeah. pole yeah. yeah. is the motors midships yeah. like the whole midships is motor yeah Right. And it's a diesel uh, Actually, turbo. Steam turbine. A steam the turbine. The diesel engine, I think, you know, creates... No, they use diesel to uh, fire the boiler. It's using diesel right. oil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they get the steam up in those turbines, though, yeah. which I don't think the Liberty ships had. Yeah. I think they had reciprocate motors or something. Yeah, but probably traditional steam. They had a reciprocate motor in there in the Fort Bay that was used on the sand pebbles. It's still there. It's still there. It's all yeah. painted white. Yeah, I talked. So to small. Talked to the chief this morning, and uh, you know, I, Sam Pebbles was a movie with Steve McQueen, by the way. I well, I brought up the term "black gang," and uh, oh yeah, he responded to that first time I ever brought it up with him. Because uh, yeah, I remember some guy doing a review of my first opera and saying I made that up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder the first time I heard it, you know. Yeah, it's saw, old. I learned it from my pop. Well, I saw Sam Pebbles recently. When they say it. I heard it, yeah. Well, he says, Black Gang don't do watch. That's right. Don't hold yeah. watch. And, uh, and uh, on this boat, they do. That's right. According to Richard. Don't McCann. stand watch. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. On this boat. Well, yeah, I mean, that was like a, I think it was a Spanish gunboat that got, you know, it was a trophy from, uh, or a spoil from our war with Spain over Philippines. Oh, okay. In Cuba, Spanish-American war. And so it wasn't a U.S. boat to begin with, but it wasn't that big. You know, it was a river boat. I don't think it was blue water kind of thing. And so, and also, there wasn't a lot the sailors did do because they had Chinese doing almost all the work. Yeah. yeah. If you if you follow the plot, 
of that story. It's China in the 20s, just before, you know, they're getting tired of a lot of puppet mastery from the, foreigners. The skipper wanted, uh, what, Holman? Holman? No, Holman is uh, Steve McQueen. He's right. The, uh, well, the skipper didn't. She he wanted me. him to train the coolie, or replacement coolie for the one that died, to... Uh, to Pohan. run the engine and, and learn it because he wanted uh, Oh, Holman. Yeah, that's right. Holman wanted, wanted him to really learn. Well, that's what they would do with the coolies. Be a soldier. Holman. <coughs> yeah. yeah, but Holman wanted to teach him. If you read the book by Richard McKenna, it's even more intense. Yeah. But what, had, what they were doing so these people wouldn't really have power is they, they, they called it monkey see and stuff. they just show them what to do. They wouldn't really t- teach him the theory behind the stuff. And Holman, you're talking about Collins. He's a skipper, but I think he's only a lieutenant. He don't. He thinks McQueen Holman uh, don't have good leadership qualities. You know, he don't like authority, which he don't. In fact, he likes machines. He likes the engine room. He likes the motor because it doesn't lie, and its logic's very uh, apparent and self-evident. Right? You don't respect it; it kills you. Yeah. That's what he said happened to Chin. Chin was the coolie running the thing. Didn't dig him going down under the boilerplates and you know hey this is my motor I'm going to go down the boilerplates so the moon key was rusted in the uh, the lock for the crankshaft when they had to stop it because there's more corruption than that because they got the whole propeller shaft a little askew so it'd be burning barons so they'd always have to be you know make work replacing barons it's probably Lapai who was the head coolie and, it, you know, it's a lot about the Navy and this stuff. But even more, it's about humanity and just how weird people well, I draw are. parallels to the way he, you know, talks about the engine. And uh, to, uh, like, if you've ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, how you find logical, logic and mechanical devices. that, And literally the title of that book kind of sells, says it all, you know. Uh-huh. And I, I, God, I read that book when I was in my 20s, but, uh, you know, that was... Uh, well, Pohan, to get this concept over so he could actually know how a steam right, motor runs, right. he uses allegory of yeah. the dragons yeah. getting tired. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. They get tired and put it through the condenser, turn it to water, heat it up. Yeah, he's, he, The one thing they're not allowed to touch, though, is the throttle. See, and he gets in big trouble for letting Pohan handle the throttle. Yeah, there's some yeah. weird... There's a whole bunch of weird stuff in that movie, but that movie and the book too. You got to read the book. Richard well, McKenna. Like he did book. many years in the Navy, maybe 23, in the engine room as a machinist mate. That's why when I first, I didn't know it was a book until I was torn with Porno for Pyros, and uh, I was walking around one morning after the gig in Pittsburgh, and I saw it there. Wow, this is a book because it was me and D. Boone's favorite movie. It came out in '66. But it was a book from the uh, early 60s. I guess it was hard to get that thing going for a movie. Uh, Robert Weiss ends up directing it. The, the pick for the star was supposed to be Paul Newman, which was Steve McQueen's huge competition. That's right, yeah. And, and uh, McQueen got the... Yeah. Movie. They wouldn't give him the award, but he, I think he got a nomination. Yeah. And... Uh, it was uh, epic back then. I saw actually my parents took me to see it in the theater in '66. Right just, when it came out, we just moved to Bremerton, Washington, and uh, and uh, you know it was a big Navy town. That's we right. used to have uh, every Thanksgiving we'd have a sailor over 
that was in transit for Thanksgiving. But you saw it when it came out. I didn't see it until it was on the TV. Me and Boom and watched it. It'd be one of those ones that was two days. That's right. Because it's so. It was a long movie, yeah. and it was a big deal. But the book, Richard McKenna, you got to read that. Yeah. Because it really. Uh, well, I was just a boy, and I couldn't really understand what was going on in the movie. But the book, as soon as I started reading it, I knew this guy was a Navy man because it sounded so much like my father speaking. It was like crazy, man. This guy couldn't have just hung out with sailors for a couple of weeks. He had to be one. And then I found out he was actually from Idaho, a place called Mountain Home, but went to the Navy. Uh, ended up retiring to Chapel Hill, married a librarian. Chapel Hill reminds me of my father because he retired to Fresno where there's no ocean like Chapel Hill. (laughs) Tells you about the Navy. And uh, he thought if you're going to be a writer, you read a bunch of Faulkner and Hemingway and and just go for it. But then he he wrote some science fiction, but the only novel he wrote was Sand Pebbles. It's a great uh, study on humanity, you know, going through the uh, idea of the military, the Navy especially, and being in foreign land. Yeah, yeah. Which was, for 1966, pretty understandable because the Vietnam thing was really getting going then. Kind of showed a microcosm of, like, you know, just social... Statements at the time, you know, with the with the politics, but it was all on a, it was just this little remote area on the river, you know. And, yeah. Uh, in China. Yeah. Not even the Yangtze, and, a small you know, And then you've got everything pulling into place. You've got, uh, you know, the missionaries with the, with the religious efforts, you know, and then the USA trying to, you know, you know, hold their position in the east and. Uh, and then you've got the Bolsheviks coming in, you know, the yeah. new communists. What era was that? It was like yeah, they don't. They fight with them some, but the main guys they deal with are Kuomintang, which is Shang. But both Bolshevik and nationalists, they both want China yeah. uh, free of foreigners. Well, maybe the Bolsheviks wanted Russians, but uh, for sure, well, it turned out, no, they didn't, because Mao had a way yeah. of dealing with them. But but they you know it'd been a couple hundred years of them opened up by foreigners, yeah. and this was the big reaction, paying off warlords, keeping China weak, yeah. and so this you know times were coming for change, and the, the other microcosm of that situation is on the boat. They got coolies doing all the work. The captain's got or the skipper's got two sets of books. He's got one for the navy and one for him and Lapai, who's the head coolie. These guys are. Doing everything from making the chow and cutting the hair and shaving to uh, doing all the cl- painting, all the cleaning, running everything. In fact, the motor, which Holman, the new recruit, has trouble with because uh, he's an engine man. He likes machines. He can't stay on one boat for long. He always has a problem with authority. He thinks a lot of the crap is uh, look-see for officers and just yeah. posing and fronting. And all this uh, facade and nothing for real. You know, what's real is a machine. It works or not. It gets you there. You can uh, understand it by learning its sounds when it's healthy, when it's sick. You can't tell with people. 
Yeah. He's got a, a huge distrust. But he gets a protege in the form of a young coolie named Polhan, and he ends up having to shoot him because Bolsheviks got him on the beach and yeah. are torturing him. Yeah. That left an imprint on my mind when I saw as a which is hell to pay old. because he owned the, some little stuff he was saving up his money, but because of all the exploitation of landlords and stuff like this, he, he got scapegoated into a weird situation. He was just yeah so sad about Pohan yeah and his name Holman Pohan. In fact, the crew hmm. starts calling him a Holmang, uh, making I fun see. of him because he's too close. Because the other thing you forget, or you didn't mention about the 60s in those times, that's really addressed in that movie, is racism. Yeah. Big time. And the U.S. was going through that with the civil rights at the time. And uh, you actually couldn't even marry an Asian lady if you were a sailor. And this is what happens with French. He ends up dying one of the cool crew guys to Holman. It's French. Yeah. And gets pneumonia swimming on over and dies in an alley. May Lee, she's rescued from being sold, you know, some crap debt of her family or something she had to help pay off by selling her body and all this. Yeah, it's it's quite a... She ends up getting murdered and Holman gets blamed for that. Yeah. yeah. Gangsters kill her. And then, uh, you know, the crew is convinced that Holman is the Jonah. They had it really good, you know. She, I think that one when he comes over, one point one of them says, "She ain't pretty, but she's a feeder." Mm. You know, yeah. like they got good shouting. Yeah. That's one of the first things. And reading about um, Richard McKenna later, he was saying the point about my point I was trying to make about the military. It's run on something called military fear. And once they lose that, everything goes to hell. And uh, it really wasn't Holman. He's kind of like Pohan, a scapegoat for the situation that they're kind of responsible for. Everybody was, you know, but there you are stuck in it. Now, Now, what's up to you is what a person can do in their life. Even though big nation things are happening with China, it's still made up of all these little personal trips. And in fact, with the missionaries, because uh, he's getting, Holman's going to jump ship. He's going to go and work on their motors. And the lady, Candace Bergen, her uh, favorite student is a very enlightened China guy, uh, young guy who ends up getting sacrificed. You know, they're, they're, it's too big. The things are happening. The momentum, people, mobs, everything gets so crazy that even with your little choices, but for all the Jonah and all the hell that they put on Holman, he's the one who ends up saving their lives. And it's very interesting how he does it, too, because the revolutionaries are coming over the wall, and he uses their name. He's calling out like That's they're right. all there. Yeah. He's using their names. Yeah. He's the only one left, right. but they, yeah. they fool him, and it get, buys him enough time. And then the very sad ending, you know, I was almost home. Exactly. What, what went wrong? Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Like I was saying, uh, at, I think I was, I would have been 10 years old when I saw it. So, you know, it was I was really just impressionable. It was kind of shocking for a 
young kid, you know, and I don't think my parents knew what I was in for because that scene where he had to shoot the... Oh, wow. Yeah, as they were torturing him, they were... They had him up on sticks and were pulling skin off his ribs. Yeah, yeah it's powerful stuff. De- death by a thousand cut kind of yeah. trip. So it's like that movie's always just kind of, you know, played in the back of my mind. And then, uh, you know, I start to listening to your show and meet you and, and realize how important the book was. And, I, you know, at 10 years old, that's kind of up in Washington State, that's when I first got into sailing and I was living by the ocean. Before that, we lived in Northern California and... So it's just kind of all tied in, you know. My dad was Navy; he was lieutenant, and and uh, but uh, you know, I it's just a powerful movie that's just kind of been with me always in the back of my mind. But I will read the book. Yeah, the Navy thing was a trip because it identified me too. You know, my father, of course. And uh, but there's a lot of human universal things in there. That are bigger than oh, just the Navy and stuff like that, and Asia even. Uh, just how humans treat each other, uh, think about themselves. Uh, you know, he was looking for something to believe in, but he just couldn't handle bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> just couldn't yeah. handle it. Yeah, he was a transfer, right? In the beginning of the Right movie. away, they got him with the duffel bag. Yeah. He wants to, they won't even let him carry his own sack. Yeah. You know, uh, and the real, I guess in the book, you know more, he's an orphan. Well, I kind of assume that. Yeah, you can tell he has no, and Steve McQueen had an alcoholic prostitute mother. I think he could identify with the role of Jay Coleman, too. I I just learned recently, I was surprised, that he he went out rough. I didn't realize he was... Oh, cancer. He was a good actor, though. Awesome actor. Some music. Happy on
Ferdinand. Okay, back, uh, yeah, talking about the politics and stuff. I uh, played some songs there. That was Guitars by Tenko, then Politics of Hate by Bass Army, and then Lame Talking by Toban Jijan. Some uh, trippy stuff from Japan. Uh, Dirk's birthday's tomorrow at 3 o'clock at the Red Man Hall on Shepherd. Oh, cool. Yeah. Tonight I play um, in Orange County, the Doll Hut. Doll Hut was an old roadhouse. It's been there for years, more than forty. It's like inland Orange County, so like I five Anaheim. Anaheim. Yeah. Disneyland. What time do you come on? Last probably. Playing with three other bands, I think OC bands, and. Uh, I try to play every Halloween. I ain't going to wear a pumpkin tonight. <laughs> I've done it, what, five, six years in a row now, and so I got another thing. Last night I played with the outfit on in Glendale. And uh, and I played this bass or whatever. It had four strings on it, but it was this long-ass pole that Grux, his cat, from... He's a young man. Well, he was a young man when I met him. 82 or something. Met him in gig. He still looks young, though, man, for being 27 years ago. And he's got a band. He's got a couple bands, but one of them is called Rubber O Cement, and he wears these incredibly strange outfits and makes sounds. He's got this thing called the Javelin Bass or something, and it's a big-ass pole with plexiglass and runs it through sounds and kind of makes uh, sounds like uh, the Godzilla movies. <laughs> And so, okay, I'll play with you. And uh, Lourdes came up with this outfit, big sock with the head thing on it that went over my face, or, or over my head, actually, and then uh, some kind of flannel wing, and then a, which was kind of stupid because I was... 
Well, I was stupid to wear flannel with it, so... And then some kind of wax sack that had stuff hanging. It was very strange. She made your costume. Yeah, well, it was Grux's instructions, friend of Grux's. And uh, I had no idea what it was. I just said, I'll do it. And then, uh, but the, the strap, it was hard to get the st- strap to stay on my shoulder and, and work this thing. It was very long. It was, uh, I don't know, eight feet. A home and, made, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Base rig, yeah. They got strings that long. It had, it had string. No, no. The the scale was well, maybe it was a little longer, but the thing itself was this big pole. It actually, was two pieces of aluminum with a board between it, which ended up the fretboard too. But no frets, and uh, very strange. It was hard, hard, kind of hard for me to play, and but. What really made it hard was it not standing on my shoulder, and then the head that was uh, heavy, it was hard to keep that thing, even though the sock over my whole head kind of kept it on there. It was like a mushroom kind of deal, you know, where my head was the stem, and then this big cap thing was, had ears on it. I'm getting visions of the Gawara You didn't get a picture? Gawara I flowed you a shot of it. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, well, I better... If you go look at it, yeah. if you go look at it, you'll see exactly what I mean. I was about to say I'm getting visions of guar meets. Here, here, go look at it. Rock 
my thing, you gotta do yours to collect Send a dance floor, turn this up They like my style, yeah, they copy that You see my smile under my floppy hat We boys sit down with a party at No stopping, you jotting down high and remove Cause we so hot and
started off with uh, Bass is My Boyfriend by Heavy Grinder. And uh, jo Julie Told Susie by Gravity of the Situation. Uh, then uh, who, uh, this, Gravity of the Situation is a solo project by the bass player of this next band, Telomere Repair, a Long Beach band. And they did Tugboat slash Jetboat. And we played with them. Second man played with them last week at Alex's. In fact, Alex was a bass player in the band before. It's called Los Misteriosos. It was great. Incredible singer, singing all kind of Mexicano folk songs all rocked up. Cool. Yeah, they were great. And, and then uh, we heard uh, Cut With Me by OG. So, I think he's 16 years old out wow. of England. And he's learning how to... Uh, Record and make sounds. Yeah. Uh, learn how to play everything. Hey, which is uh, great, man. I wish I had that nerve when I was 16. Me and BD Boom were trying to find. Oh, wait, now you, you saw the picture, so yeah. now you understand the bass. Yeah. The string length ain't that big, but the instrument itself is. It is double the length of the strings. Yeah. I think he called it an ace wow. instead of a bass. Yeah. Yeah, it's this big aluminum. It didn't weigh a lot, but I actually had to prop one in on the deck because I couldn't get the strap to go over my shoulder. Four uh, strings? Four. Yeah, four. Yeah. But uh, I don't know if it was tuned or anything. I don't, I don't know. I <laughs> he had it going through the PA. and You know, since no frets, I was using a lot of the glissandro and stuff. And, uh, yeah. But you can see, too, the headdress or whatever you want to call it. It was difficult. So you, don't, you don't need to look at your fingers when you're playing anymore after all these years, do you? Yeah, I don't see how you can see anything with that headdress on. Oh, it's a sock. Yeah. So you can oh, see okay. through it. I got you. Okay, but, yeah, the real tough one, like pumpkins are hard yeah. to see what's going on, <laughs> for sure. And uh, hard to kind of breathe. And really hard for the singing mic. Yeah. Yeah, to get it. You probably smell pumpkin for a week after that being up. Yeah, but I like pumpkin. Well, I've made better. I've made pumpkin pies with the insides a lot. Yeah. Uh, so you can see the situation last night. That was quite of a challenge, and uh, and and then I didn't show you Grux's costume, but his was even more intense. He had sacks of stuff hanging off every part of his body, and he was running all around. Like I said, it was sort of like one of them uh, Godzilla Monster Zero. Right. Gamma Rob, Rodan right, movies. Right. A big rubber. Right, right. they're bouncing around. That's how, And he made sounds like that with his bass. Latex. I think they did a lot of use with the latex. You know? Yeah, and laser beams out the mouth. He didn't have laser beams. But. Like to, Eric Bloom used to shoot one out of his wrist. Yeah. I remember at the end of... Yeah, they had big... Their, those shows were so expensive with the laser beams. and big hassle. Rody uh, has been doing some elaborate posts on a for safety couple of websites so that, you know uh, hot rails to hull is a guy named Ralph in England that uh, you know is a uh, the new documentarian of the band <laughs> yeah and uh, and so uh, the, Re recontour yeah but man there's some stories of the, the well, that's what recontour is he? he's a storyteller oh okay yeah, the stories from the roadies are better than you'd ever hear from the band. The band has no idea what's going on, you know, a lot of times, you know. And uh, but they, it, he, he went into detail about how the cooling systems they had for, to have for those lasers, and then they had uh, 
they had all of these uh, environmental groups and people just on them, you know, concerned about the places catching on fire. And yeah, yeah. It was green. It was green lasers. Yeah. It wasn't like you would think the red. They were green ones. Yeah. And then they bounce. They had mirrors on the back of the guitars too, and then they'd hold those up. And oh, really? They'd bounce. Oh, yeah. Maybe this is later. When I saw him, he had one that came out of his wrist. Yeah. On a and when he bounced them off was a spinning disco mirror ball. Yeah. yeah. And it went shooting all over the place. Yeah. And then they had some kind of one that would wave back and forth for yeah. the beginning of a harvester of eyes. Yeah. I think the Who actually did the lasers first, but I'd have to research that more. But they they just about exhausted all their monies. They were losing monies on those laser tours, you know, but that was their peak, 76, you know, 75, 76. I think 75 is the last time I saw them. The band? Yeah. I saw them do Soft White Underbelly and Pedro here maybe in 80. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But that wasn't like... You know about that show. That was a, Albert I, was playing... And I didn't realize until I talked to Albert many years later. These are pictures from that show. I remember Albert having a blinky bow tie. Well, when I showed this to Bola, the former head of the BOC fan club, he goes, he recognized that blurry shot as Albert. Yeah. And well, I didn't know it was Albert until I talked to him later. This is the waters. And uh, my fourteenth Pacific buddy of mine's a professional photographer. He worked for the Pasadena Weekly at the time. He took these, but when I showed it to Paul, he goes, "Oh man, that was this brief tour. They'd kicked Albert out of the band. I know, and he brought him back. They were hanging. They didn't have a drummer for a while. And uh, but it was it was not called Blue Oyster Cult. It was called Soft White. Yes, that's correct. But we're at the end of the first hour here. I've got more BOC in that. Well, no, hour two, we got an interview with Ron Ashton in uh, February of 2001, so hold tight for that. Uh, October 31st, 2009, Happy Halloween, second hour of the Watt from Pedro show. And here's an interview John Griffin did with Ron Ashton in uh, February, February 27th of 2001. Uh, at WCBN at Ann Arbor, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, uh, yeah, a bunch of interesting stuff from uh, Ronnie. What from Peter's show. Well, big thanks for John for letting me have this. Here we are. You know, Back at wonderful WCBN. You've been down here many times Oh, before. yeah, Destroy a Monsters Days. Right. right. Um, sitting in guest DJ, playing live, actually, also. Uh-huh, uh-huh, so, uh-huh. I haven't been here in a while, but it's cool. It hasn't changed. Right on, right on. A little bit rattier, a little cooler. And I was changed a lot, though, you say. Oh, I mean, yeah. What do you, how, do you, how do you view that in a lot of sense? I mean, being Crowded, part of... traffic jams, new ugly buildings. Right. It's changed a lot. <laughs> right, right, right. A lot of the energy's kind of different, I guess, too. Yeah. Yeah. And there's still plenty of music, a lot of people playing. There is. Which is cool. There's always plenty of bands, good people, good musicians. Right on. And it does keep on in that sense. Yeah, there's 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 uh, something about this town too. You know, I'm not from here, from Massachusetts. I kind of just ended up here by accident. Most and, people uh, do. Yeah, it's kind of funny <laughs> like that. Yeah, and it's kind of you know that's the, the the kind of charm about this town. Besides the fact it's got this good history, mm-hmm. but even at any point in history, this town it seems to be a pretty decent place. Yep. But uh, so speaking of history, I want to I want to give a little background first. I know that a lot of people may not be too familiar with uh, with with you personally. A lot of people a lot of times hear a lot more about uh, Iggy uh, with the series, but tonight we're going we're to focus on Ron and, and who he is and where he came from. You started off, your your uh, first musical influences 
uh, as reading a lot of this is from an interview from uh, Jason Gross, who I, I have to get credit to because there's a lot of great stuff in, on there. But uh, you started off playing uh, accordion. You had some uh, relatives that were involved in, in vaudeville. Yes, my great aunt Ruthie and uncle Dick Dick. <clears throat> they actually had a trained parakeet act, and he played piano, and she played the banjo and violin, and. Um, they used to put on shows for me. They were long retired, but uh, good old Dick Dick, the alcoholic, would sit at the piano still with his last parakeet, Petey, covered in bird crap, and play <laughs> piano for me. And Ruthie would come in, play some banjo, a little violin. Uh -huh. So she gave me an old violin to start out with, because uh -huh. I used to just sit there while everyone else was in the backyard having the clam bake. Uh -huh. But I just sit there and listen to Dick Dick play and listen to the stories. Uh -huh. And she gave me the old violin, and I used to scratch away on it. So my mother took it away and turned it into a planter. Uh -huh. And so she got me an accordion. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So I started taking accordion lessons when I was five. What do you think it was about music that attracted you to it? I mean, I mean, obviously it's, it's when well, you're young, I, it's an input. Well, I always loved uh, the singing cowboys when I was a kid, Gene, uh -huh. Roy Rogers and Gene Autry. Uh -huh. So that sort of got me into it. I was always into movies. Uh -huh. So here you got the singing cowboys their shows with music, cowboy ac action and music. Right, yeah. So that's what really got me going. And once again, to actually hear live music, uh -huh. my aunt, great aunt and uncle, actually mm -hmm. playing, just the sound, it was, it was fascinating to mm -hmm. hear the live sound. Why not? So eventually you moved on to guitar. When did you, how old were you starting playing, uh, playing guitar? Ten. What? I was still taking accordion, so I'd exchange. Mm -hmm. One Saturday I'd do accordion, and the next Saturday guitar. Mm -hmm. What kind of music like influenced you at the time to, to pick up guitar? I mean, obviously rock and roll was still pretty young. I just liked all the classical, you know, not classical music, but the standard contemporary music of the time, mm -hmm. like Peggy Lee and mm -hmm. all just Frank Sinatra. Right. My mother was way into music, so she had a really big record collection. Uh -huh. She actually used to sing when she was younger. She actually sang on the radio, CKLW. Yeah, I saw them. What, yeah. what, what, what was no? She 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 sang on the radio. CKL. Well, yeah, but that's of course before I was born. Right, she was right. a teenager. Uh -huh, okay. So she had a lot of music around the house. Mm -hmm. She had a great record collection. We always mm -hmm. had a great stereo. Is she support, it, it, yeah, and she support? Yeah, we. I just listened to her tunes. She'd right. have music on all the time. So I just, you know, I was born to do this anyways. I guess you're supposed to. It's my destiny. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So just having music around all the time. Mm -hmm. I just got in playing, all the kids were out playing softball or riding their bikes around. I'd mostly stay in the house and listen to music until <laughs> so I got kicked out, get out, you gotta get out in the sunshine. Uh-huh. So you're, you're playing guitar for a while, you're, you're doing that thing, and, and eventually uh, you had this uh, kind of thing where you wanted to start, uh, uh, or you decided you wanted to go to England to go see the Beatles. Well actually, yeah, what happened was I took lessons and then I stopped for a while. And then that's what happened. Bob Dylan and the Beatles, I started listening to Bob Dylan, so I got out the old little Martin mm -hmm. and would strum along and picked it up again. Right. And used to go to, uh, which is really corny, I'd go to Herb David's, I'd be like 17, uh -huh. when he was on State Street, and I'd have my tweed jacket and my uh, brown corduroys. I'd smoke my $2 pipe with a little cherry blend. 17-year-old kid just hanging out at Herb's pretending he's cool. Right. And I wound up, there was a folk club, uh, it was called Bimbo's, I believe, it was a pizza parlor, and they had like Josh White Jr., they had nationally known, or up and coming where, where's, folk singers. Where was Bimbo's at? I, really? It was in Washington or something, mm. it was near here, okay. it was just a pizza parlor, I can't remember, but you'd go and there was, you know, small cover, 
and we get a pizza, but you know, go and drink like 12 cups of coffee right. and stay there the whole time. So that's what got me into music. Then, of course, seeing the Beatles totally got me geeked on it. So Dave Alexander and I, Dave wanted to go to England. So he goes, hey, I'm going to England. Would you like to go? I'm going, yeah, but I'm in high school, and junior year, good student. So I did. My mom let me go, and I sold my motorcycle to get my ticket. And we took off, and that was no turning back after that. Once being there on your own at 17, in England, you know, we thought we were going to see the Stones walking the street. Yeah, like, well, where's Ringo? Of course, it wasn't like that. It was the heavy modern rocker right. time, right. and we were actually chastised by both sides. We yeah. were caught in a time warp. I mean, you know, we looked. Dave looked like George Harrison style, and I was into Brian Jones, so we had long hair, and uh -huh. nobody, we didn't look like anybody, the rockers or the mods. So, but it was still a great experience to go and be away. And once I came back, uh -huh. how, how long were you there for? Just a month. Yeah, really. But okay. that's all they would allow us to stay with right. the money we had. Right, right, right. But just that changed my whole life. There was no turning back. Yeah. Goodbye, normal nine to five. Goodbye, world. So freak here. So, so I, I know you got thrown out of school, but you were uh, from uh, Pioneer High. Well, I was right. the first to get expelled for long hair. Wow, that's, that's a good honor. And I was called down to the the uh, principal's office, and he says you're a disrupting influence uh -huh. on the rest of the students. Uh -huh. What, what? I've never gotten a fight. Uh -huh. I'm a good student, and just the way I look, I'm okay. disrupting the whole school. Well, we share a common bond. So I was thrown out of high school for a Mohawk, so yes. cheers, cheers, <laughs> and a Catholic school, no less. Explains <laughs> 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 why I'm here today. So, so at the time, though, was there a lot of stuff that for kids your age to do? I mean, like you know, you're not old enough to really get in the bars really as much yet. Um, and musically, was there stuff to go do and that kind of thing? I mean, you mentioned bimbos, but yeah, not really. You kind of made up stuff yourselves. Mm -hmm. We'd kind of go to. Uh, I was actually got in a uh, a high school band while I was in still in school, the Chosen Few. Yeah. Okay. And that was with uh, Scott Richardson, who went on to be in the SRC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we played every weekend. So it was really cool to be that young and making almost you know a couple hundred bucks a week mm -hmm. playing on weekends. So we were at a lot of fraternity parties. We did the TGIFs mm -hmm. at the quads or wherever mm -hmm. to do like two jobs a night, either in town. Uh, there are a frat house or go out to like Daniel's Den, some of the teen clubs in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. There's no liquor but pop and chips and Kids girls. Dancing. Yeah, right. And yeah. cool because we looked like the Rolling Stones. And, right. But what was really fun is the fraternity parties, especially the Sammy's, the Med House, because they'd set pictures of screwdrivers on our amps. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So I was like, oh. by the end of the night, I was the only one. Somebody had to drive. So everybody else. <laughs> My brother was the equipment man. Oh, right. He's okay. out in the van in a puddle of puke. <laughs> and, you know, I, he, I was the only one that was responsible. Everybody else is blasted. Right. But that was fun at the frat parties, too. Right on. Right so on. that's what we did. Mm -hmm. You also did uh, a stint in the Prime Movers for a, a short time, also, like um, by Michael Irwin. You want to talk about that a little bit? Here? What was that like? Yeah, for? that was cool. Uh, I knew Iggy and. Just from school and in past, I didn't really know him in school. I right. kind of met him more when we used to go to the Michigan Union cafeteria mm -hmm. to hang out. Even though we get kicked out sometimes three, four times mm -hmm. in the afternoon, mm -hmm. see your IDs, mm -hmm. uh, bing. Right. But I always just you know wait a half hour, come back. Right. So I know I knew Rick Higginbotham, who later went on and played with Commander Cody. I believe okay. he played bass. 
So he goes, yeah, I got this cool job in the blues band with Iggy. We, it wasn't really Iggy back then. Right, it, was so it was Michael Irwine that coined. They called him Ignatius because of the iguanas. Oh, okay. So Michael Irwine gave him the name Iggy. Oh, okay. So I go, wait a minute, you can't play at all, and I can play a little bit. So Iggy goes, well, why don't you come and audition also? So I felt bad for my buddy because he just got the job, but mm -hmm. I went and... Uh, I got the job. I they had me play. I could do just one, four, five. I wasn't really that accomplished on bass, mm -hmm. but they had me sing "Not Fade Away." And I think what clinched it for me is I sang "The Girl from Eva." <laughs> I went, "What?" They, they had the Prime Mover songbook. It was like four inches thick uh -huh. of all these songs that they knew and could cover. Right. And I went, "What?" So. So, was, so they, was, they played it, and I sang, and I got the job. Was that was that kind of a new experience for you? Though? I guess I was a little more professional. Oh yeah, that right. I. I thank them a lot because that was my total learning experience mm -hmm. to play with professional musicians. Mm -hmm. They were pretty well accomplished. Mm -hmm. And I, every day after school, I'd go and just practice my ass mm -hmm. off until... Uh, I can say that word. Okay. <laughs> until uh, um, the band practice later on. Right. And eventually they did find someone because they, they had to go on and I really wasn't good enough. Right. So they found a guy named Jack Dawson that really fit in well because he was a good singer, great bass player. Uh -huh. So they kept me on as roadie, mm -hmm. and I got to play a couple uh, tunes now and then at shows they did in town. And even I went to hang out with them when they were at a bar in Grand Rapids for a month. Mm -hmm. Every weekend, their girlfriends would drive me up, get me drunk, yeah. and then I'd play tambourine and some bass. <laughs> there you go. And there you go. It was uh, that. That's how I learned. I right. and then when Iggy wanted to learn the double shuffle, because they did the great. Um, um, Paul Butterfield Blues Band covers, and right. Sam Lay had that double shuffle, and I got to practice hours and hours with Jim, mm -hmm. and that's how I actually learned how to play. And then the Chosen Few, I learned to play all my favorite Beatles and mm -hmm. Stones, Yardbirds, Kink songs mm -hmm. in the high school cover band. And and also another thing about mentioning the Chosen Few, I, I read in that one interview with Jason Gross that you were also the first person to strike the first chord at the Grandy Ballroom yep. in Detroit as well. That's what the Chosen Few. The very first was a. G. Holland, who was the assistant manager and uh, Discount Records, mm -hmm. and he was the manager of the Rationals, mm -hmm. he gave us this uh, English EP. And it was the Stones doing that, Everybody Needs Somebody, right. Pain in right. My Heart, and Route 66. Mm -hmm. And that was our big opener, man. That's three right in a row, right on. Tr stripped down tunes. So I did the first Bill Wyman. Right <laughs> So that, you know, I never thought about it at the time, but that was cool. We opened up for the MC5. Right on. Right and that's on. how I met the MC5. Right on. You mentioned also the Rationals. Um, I heard another interview that, uh, uh, I guess, another experience for everyone to get into rock and roll, seeing the Rationals play at Pioneer one time. Do you, do you yes. you like what I'm talking about? I um, was in a jug band with Bill Kirchin, mm -hmm. and he goes, well, we need a harmonica player. I go, oh, gee, I can play. Uh -huh. So I went home that night and practiced all night. Uh -huh. I go, oh, I can play, yeah. I got the job in the band, so we were waiting to audition mm -hmm. for the talent show, mm -hmm. and before us was the Rationals, and I mm -hmm. really hadn't heard of them, and I didn't know them. My brother went to school uh, with um, Scott, I believe, okay. and when they played, I was totally blown away, because mm -hmm. here's 15-year-old guys mm -hmm. that are playing as well or better than the guys that the songs, they wrote the song. Mm -hmm. Great Beatle covers, they did... One of my favorite songs, For Your Love by the Yardbirds. Mm -hmm. I was totally blown away. I'm going, mm -hmm. oh, man, there's there's no way we're going to get on the talent show. But <laughs> we did because there wasn't much talent out there. Yeah, right. And uh, they start. I, I had to get to know those guys. Right. Yeah, Scott Morgan's a great guy. And yeah. uh, 
my brother knew uh, his brother, and his brother had a spare drum Game set. Morgan. So we started borrowing the drum set and stuff, and that's how I got to know Scott Morgan. I was, mm -hmm. you know, 15 years old. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Jesus, I mean, those guys, they were a great band. Right. Yeah. If they hadn't gotten uh, uh, pimped by uh, Aretha Franklin, they had their cameo Parkway respect, and they were going national, and then uh, she came out with it, and they sort of lost that edge on that tune, but mm -hmm. what a great band. And I'm sure Scott's been down here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Times. In fact, actually, Scott actually will be probably stopped down here a little later on. He's doing a little band practice. What's that? This guy right now? Oh, that's Scott on the phone as we speak, actually. We're talking about you. Yeah, there he is. So let's let's jump a little uh, jump ahead here since since uh, you know we've got a little formation like we've got a little idea like musical history on you. Um, you um, when you came back from England, you you decided at one point before you did the chosen few and and, and the prime movers and stuff that you wanted to uh, you and your brother and Dave Alexander all wanted to form a band and I kind of started off kind of slow at first. Yes, no, well, that was what we did. We basically just played in Dave's bedroom. <laughs> right, right. We we put on of uh, records. We like the Bells of Arrhythmia by the Birds, uh -huh. and She's About a Mover by the Sir Douglas Quintet, and we'd play along with those tunes. Mm -hmm. We had the stereo, he had a great stereo back mm -hmm. then, top of the line, right. and just blast them. We're going, yeah, man, we're great. Then try, just try without it, and of course, nobody could play at all. Mm -hmm. We go, we need Bill Cheatham, so we got Bill Cheatham in there on rhythm guitar, it was even worse. <laughs> so we really didn't, we just sort of plugged along, and that's how we kind of. Uh -huh. Learned, eked our way along. Uh -huh. We never really played a show or anything, right. but uh, we were a very popular band in Ann Arbor, uh -huh. even though we never played. Yeah, what were you called? The Dirty Shanes. <laughs> the Dirty Shanes, okay. And that's the core, uh -huh. and that's how we became friends, and uh -huh. that's how I really became friends with Dave. Mm -hmm. My brother had met a, he, we moved into the subdivision, and we'd see this guy going down the road in a 67 in Palau. It was a 65, mm -hmm. even like you know, 80 miles an hour, and it's this wild, crazy guy. And finally, he stopped, and we talked to him. Okay. He lives down the street, and that became great friendship uh -huh. until he died. So that's yeah. we were the core, and then somehow Iggy came aboard. So how did, how did that all come together? I, I know you obviously well, all knew pretty each much other. A, it was pretty much from Iggy called me up mm -hmm. and said he got me the job in the chosen few actually. Mm -hmm. He was working at Discount Records and Scott Richardson came in and he said, there's a guy down here that seems pretty cool that's looking for a bass player. So I hung out with Scott all afternoon and I wound up going back to Birmingham, Michigan with him the next day. And that's how, just me dragging along Dave and my brother and seeing Iggy, we, we became friends. Because they were my buddies and you know, Dave had a car. That's how we all right. went up. Right. So, so you guys started uh, just kind of started jamming, and you got to get the, the thing together. Like well, how, how did it start actually, together? actually, Iggy quit the Prime Movers, mm -hmm. and he went to, to live in Chicago because he was friends with Sam Lay. Mm -hmm. he, Iggy wanted to be a blues drummer mm -hmm. for real, mm -hmm. so Sam took him under his wing and protected him. Took him in all the hardcore clubs, where he was probably the only white kid in there, and mm -hmm. it wasn't Big Sam and, and the forty-five shoulder holster. Right. Watches his white bud. He could have been in trouble, but he finally Jim called up and he had enough. He realized it really wasn't what he was going to want to do. Mm -hmm. So he called up and said, "Hey, why don't you guys come to Chicago and pick me up?" And, <laughs> and Dave's uh, car. <laughs> and, and well, actually, we went with this woman called Vivian. 
uh-huh. was the bass player in a band called the Charging Rhinoceros of Soul. Oh, who was, was with uh, Steve uh, McKay, yeah. was the Larry mm-hmm. Funhouse, right? Okay. And uh, we picked him up and brought it, and he said, "I want to start a band with you guys. It's, we want to do something totally different, out of context, with just regular, mm-hmm. you know, music, not like the Stones or the Beatles." So we so, got so, together and just started. Uh, he got a Farfisa organ, and we started jamming in my basement with just weird sounds, like my bass with um, fuzz tone and wah-wah pedal. Uh-huh. <coughs> Excuse me. Why, why do you think you went in that direction? Because, I mean, at the time, obviously, a lot of people are like, maybe, like, <coughs> you know, want to shoot towards, like, this Beatles thing or Stone thing, like you're saying, or maybe, like, kind of go in different directions. But, like, I mean, a lot of the stuff you're talking about was, I mean, besides the fact it was ahead of its time, was also not really very... I mean, there wasn't anything really around you could identify with. Well, like, it, could you? it's because of the Who doing things like... Um, Happy Jack, mm-hmm. them talking about rock opera, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what got us really excited. Mm-hmm. Wow, a rock and roll opera, mm-hmm. and we loved the Who, and that's before Tommy. But they had mm-hmm. that that song Happy Jack, which was yeah, such a strange, cool song. So we just started putting together just pieces of music, uh, riffs. Iggy would sit down at the Farfisa and come up with a a simple kind of thing. I'd follow with a wah wah and fuzz tone bass, and get some uh, brothers some kind of percussion. Thing going up, a, a, a modified Bo Diddley beat or conga beat, mm-hmm. and just have it go into different segments. All of a sudden, shift gears, and they go into a different piece of music. Mm-hmm. So we worked up this hour-long piece of music called the Razor's Edge, mm-hmm. and we we wow. never really um, performed it, right. other than the one time uh, we first played that Halloween show, which was. Uh, our first time we ever played at MC5 were there. It was just a little party at our manager's house. Where, where is this here? In- this was here in Ann Arbor, just at his house. Do you remember what the, the, where it was? It, the house was on State Street. Not by. It's the Galman, the oil company. Isn't it Galman right on there on State on okay. State Street? Okay. Before Briarwood. Now it's... Oh, I see. The front of the house is a teeny house. It's still there. On fire. But they've added a bunch of other things on. Mm-hmm. And it's like some architectural design mm. company or something. But uh, so you well, eventually it, it went from that to the Grandy shows where we really learned to play. Mm-hmm. Where we made up our own instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and finally, that's when Dave really got in the band. Other than Dave just taking the custom amp and crashing the head to get that good yeah, reverb, right, crazy sound. Yeah. He just, or he played all the weird percussion, right. the vacuum cleaner with the microphone. Uh-huh. Um, so we. I said, well, I'm going to play guitar, Dave, play bass. Uh-huh. So we kind of naturally gravitated to the format that the Stooges became on the first record. What, the, what do you think drove you to do that? Because at a certain points in time, it's, it's naturally been uh, a sort of uh, anomaly that exists where people just all of a sudden, like, they don't even know ex- exactly how, like, the history's gone, but they just naturally just kind of have just, like, created some racket. What do you think it was that just made you at that time, and when everybody else is, like, you know, hippieing out and stuff, what made you want to go crazy? Because we were. <laughs> Good answer. So he says, right on. Right, right on. So, the, so, well, yeah. so you're doing you're doing the shows, and, and, and you're 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 playing a lot with the five and stuff, and eventually, you um, well, yeah, this that, offer. That's to, how we really learned to play. Just, right. Uh, Russ Gibb loved us. We were the freaks of the Grandy. Right, right. So we get all you know, great lineup. Have us do our freak show, and the MC Five do their high energy rock show. So we just played. We actually learned to play. Uh, our instruments by playing shows. Uh-huh. We got better and better, and then you know the rest of the tale is. Of uh, we got signed 
by Electric because the MC5 was signed, and mm -hmm. Danny Field saw us at the Michigan Union Ballroom, mm -hmm. and they go, well, we just we were still doing freeform mm -hmm. pieces of music like start a riff, mm -hmm. and just we were playing for 15, 20 minutes, half hour. What was it like playing at the, at the ballroom? I know I've seen I've seen oh, the it, video that the, it was yeah. always fun because it was a happening. Right. It was always uh, everyone showed up. Right. It was guaranteed good show. Everyone had a good time. It's a damn shame that the kids aren't putting shows on there now. Too. And it was a fun place, yes. And it was, back then, we, people really got behind it. Mm -hmm. And it always filled the place. I mean, mm -hmm. whoever played, mm -hmm. it was always a good time. And the only weird thing was, like, they were pretty good about, no one got rowdy and there was never fights. Of course, you couldn't have uh, alcohol or tobacco right. or uh, marijuana, but right. people would find ways to walk around and keep moving. So <laughs> right. You just got to keep moving. Right and never get tagged, and no one started any trouble, mm -hmm. and um, or messed the place up. So it was cool. Mm. I even stayed sometimes to clean up afterwards, just hang out. All right, that's there how much go. people were into using the place. True humanitarian, right on. That's what I like. So, so we we uh, we, we talked about the, we had the the signing there at Letra. You went to New York and worked with uh, John Cale to to do the first album. Now, what, now what kind of experience was that? Because had, had you recorded this no. at this point? I'd never been in the recording studio. Uh -huh. It was really fun. We're in New York. Yeah. We're in New York. And uh -huh. we're kind of a field trip with you guys. Yeah. Well, I'd been a couple times before. Right. Like literally going with my brother in a band full of people. Right. I had twenty bucks. I'm going. Oh, brothers don't have any money, so here's ten dollars for you, ten for me, and just live on orange juice and everyone sleep on the floor of the Earl Hotel with cockroaches running over our faces. Oh man. So yeah, it was fun going to New York. We actually. What a dream! It happened so fast. Here we are, right. young guys who are signed by a record company. That the doors are on. Wow. Right, right, right. So that, that must be kind of a thing for you guys too. Oh. I know you guys are big doors. And we never like recorded. And well, John Cale, Velvet Underground, cool. We knew some about them uh -huh. and liked the stuff. Right. And it was his first job as a staff producer. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So. And you guys at this time also were living. No, this is this is when you were living on Forest Court. Is that correct? no? That was just our summer sub. That was the summer sub. Oh, so you just lived there for a short time. Yeah, in the 67 we were sort now. of in between. I uh -huh. think we had just moved into uh, what became known as Stooge Hall, that was on Packard. Okay, right. The great old farmhouse that right. was subdivided into apartments. Uh huh. Fantastic, perfect. Any even bands today. I mean, I wish uh -huh. I lived there today. Right, right. It was right. such a huge, great, fantastic house. Uh -huh. There was nothing there at the time, so. Uh -huh. We could get away, except for one neighbor would always call the cops on us. <laughs> but we went to New York, and that's how we worked up the tunes. We told Electra, they said, well, do you have any songs? Uh -huh. And we go, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. So basically, I just started kicking out riffs and pieces, and, and Iggy and myself put together those tunes. So you did actually... the lyrics. Did you actually well, have we had no songs. There were no songs at We time. got signed with no tunes. Wow, that's amazing. We were just doing that jam. Uh -huh. We were just doing that half an hour piece of music uh -huh. oh sure we got tunes so how did, how we had a couple weeks so we put the tunes together so how did you go from like you know I mean obviously the pressure was on you had to write tunes for the record but how did you I mean that's a lot of like pressure to write such an album that's such a classic hey we still. work best under pressure you know I love it right. pressure right. always just about everything I've ever written even when I did the wild rat stuff uh -huh. oh gee we're making the record in one week I better write some tunes <laughs> so right uh, we, we just work well under pressure uh -huh. and when you're young and crazed anything's possible why do you think the record I mean still stood around for so long still, I mean it's been obviously a major influence on a lot of people and, and it's still and it beats the, you know half the records that are out there now what, what do you think of it's about simple, it? simple it tells a simple truth mm -hmm. it's like pure form of a rock and roll or early punk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it just speaks to that young mind rebellious mind 
and the the music just I it conveys as I played. I mean, that's what I felt. You can feel the soul and the truth in the playing. Mm -hmm. It's honest. I can't really play. Purity. I'm forcing out what's in me mm. into my instrument, even though mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But I'm making this sound come out. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it stands up because it's an honest bunch of music. You know, there's a one one great song that's on here. Obviously, it's no fun. I've, I've seen a documentary about how you guys wrote that. It's kind of supposedly it was based off of Johnny Cash's "Walk the Line." Is that true or is that not true? <laughs> is, that, is that fake? Is yeah, of course it is. It's one of Iggy's stories. Ah, oh, oh, it, it was first from jo Johnny yeah. Cash's. I I came up with the riff. Okay. You know, I wrote the the music. You know, uh -huh. you know, it's either that's one of his things. It comes from Johnny. Every Stooges song came from Johnny Cash. <laughs> I walked the line, or, or Ring of Fire, uh -huh. and the other one. And then I've heard this one too. All those songs from that first album came from a walk I took in Detroit, where the factories, the machines are going. <laughs> it's the factories. He just makes up stuff right. to interest his audience. Right. To keep, you know, he's told so going. many sure. fibs that he can't keep some of his stuff together. Uh -huh. So, uh, it people buy it, but that's not true. We just really? created it. It was just. Sitting here at the, you know, being stoned, right, and sitting in, in the band house, uh -huh. and being a band and hanging out together, uh -huh. um, and just playing, coming up with riffs, and then going, "Hey Jim," or he'd hear me playing, and he'd go, "I like that." Uh -huh. Well, won't, you know, um, you know, he'll listen to it and make a tape and write something for it. But all the titles were things that we actually said also, like, uh -huh. "No fun," or "Ah, she's not right," or "We'll have right. a real cool time." You know, so it's all, all of, just there, yeah. Yeah, part of our right. band lingo, and he was smart enough to just take that stuff and turn it into lyrics. Right on. Because that was pretty much, we were living those lyrics. Right on. And we were a band in the days when we always did almost everything together. Right. It was rare that you didn't hang out with your dudes. Man. Right on. You did everything except for, you know, take a dump and, <laughs> and sleep, right. or even then sometime, but not have sure. sex, of course. Sure. Sure. Or share your girlfriend. That right. was something that didn't really. <laughs> but other than that, we were always together. We tripped right. together, right. ate food together. Right. You know, we're coming down off ass. And it's sad because a lot of people are, are driven apart. Everybody sold it like, you know, like driven apart is not like much of the community. Yeah, it's, that's what's so different about Ann Arbor now is every band really would help each other. It wasn't any. It wasn't like competition. Right. Yeah, those guys are cool. They need. Oh, they want to borrow an amp. Yeah, okay. Or you get us on a show, and everyone really helped each other. It was no, it was right. us against the establishment. So mm -hmm. you take care of your bros, you know. The way it should be. The way it should be. Scott Morgan, we were just talking about earlier. Uh, yeah. He, he's popped in here and stuff. But Scott Morgan, of course, it was in, in the Rational Sonics, Ronnie Boo, and many other bands. And now you're doing thing as well. A new thing coming out. And it's good to have both you guys down here, man. So. Yeah, man, I'm staying busy. Right on. So, so <laughs> you guys, you guys, you, you guys, you, you guys <laughs> must have played some shows together at, at certain points too, in, in, in separate bands. With, with oh yeah, we played with Rationals and uh, Stooges played together. We played the Birmingham Palladium. You guys ever these these gigs at all? Well, I used to go ride with them sometimes when they did all the sock hops uh -huh. in Detroit. Right. And be terrified at Jeep Holland, 95 miles an hour, 94. Yeah. And I was going to be, I almost took a ride home with him the night that he rolled the van off the express. My brother rolled the van off the express. Oh, no. And no one was really hurt, and the uh -huh. equipment was banged up a it's bit. amazing. But, it, I mean, he went off, and the van went, uh -huh. Uh -huh. and I was almost in it. I probably would have been the guy that got killed if I rolled the van. Oh, no. I got opened, up, opened up like a sardine can. Yep. Man. Like, really? But wow. I used to go see those guys all the time as the Rationals, and uh -huh. because of hanging out, I got to see like 
13th floor elevator, Richard and the Young Lions. They played all those great shows, those, uh, they had all those bands and had records out there were popular because they had respect. What was, what was it like for you guys playing in bands back in the NRA? What was the scene like for you guys and all that sort of thing? You know, I mean, obviously, you were saying before, like, oh, everybody's real supportive of each right. other and stuff. And what was and it? I just spoken about that. Yeah. Everyone's supportive and uh, bands hanging out. It was the special club you hung out with. There were a lot, there were a lot of, like, different, like, uh, space to have shows. And was this when, you know, the concerts were starting to happen in the parks? The outdoor things, yeah. Yeah, like like I first mean, West Park. Do you guys remember any the good the like, a lot of those good concerts stuff? Do you remember any, any particular? Well, what, what sticks out for me is it was a hot day at West Park, uh -huh. and the MC Five were playing, uh -huh. and they talked me into taking some acid. <laughs> so I did, and then it's so hot, and I'm going, I'm, I'm kind of miserable. Uh -huh. And then uh, Dennis Thompson goes here. He gave me a 16-ounce bottle of ice-cold Stroh's beer, uh -huh. and I discovered beer and acid, and it was just wonderful. Good combo. Cold beer on a hot summer day on acid, and all of a sudden, hey, I wasn't having it. Yeah, That's yeah. the one thing that sticks out for me a lot. About right, right. They were right. fun. I mean, uh -huh. everyone was having a great time. What was it was like for you guys at the Granny Ballroom stuff? You guys all both like play some shows like. Like the granny ballroom a lot and stuff. Like what kind of scene was after you guys? Obviously, that was like a lot of the lights and the, the, on the sound and home. stuff. I started going after I played there. Uh -huh. I would just go by myself every Friday and Saturday night. Uh -huh. Just take the family car uh -huh. and drive there myself. Uh -huh. Take a little hit of speed, maybe uh -huh. a little uh -huh. dexoxidant, go and just listen to uh, uh, the uh, the what was the band that had the song Time? I want some of the time. Uh -huh. Chambers Bros. Yeah. Chambers. And they do like perfect uh, speed, like an hour's version of, of, of time. And just go in there to hang out because that was a cool place to wear your flash clothes. You could either you know wear your hippie stuff or your English Beatles stuff. And it was Grandy was home, so I always try to go. Right. So. So after the what about him? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah what yeah, about yeah. What do you think? Yeah, about yeah, it, come right? on, man, get in this conversation. You know, it's yeah. interesting that there's this MC5 movie, you know, that's coming out, and we went down like when they were first starting to make it, and actually went back to the Grandy, and there's holes oh, in the ceiling now. Back? Yeah, we there was a big piece of plywood over the front door, you know, where you go up the, the stairs wow. in the front, and some church owns it now, and they've just kind of let it go. I heard there's that. Some it's just completely abandoned. Holes in the ceiling. It rains, snows in. Holes in the floor. And I'm holding a piece not, of it in my John hand. John has a piece in his hand of the Grandy Ball. It, it was a beautiful place. My mother said she used to go dancing there right. when she was a younger. The story that they always told us was that the big bands were louder than the bands with amplifiers. <laughs> yeah. That must have been uh, something. It was a yeah. beautiful room. Yeah, really. Yeah, it's sad. It's sad. I've only seen it since the. You know the the, the the decadence of it all, but that was really like I mean, where everybody hung out though. That was it really was the, the cool spot. That's when I actually smoked marijuana with John Sinclair, Perry Bullard, the state representative, and a police lieutenant uh -huh. in uniform with gun, but uh -huh. backstage of the Grand. Yeah, I'm with Sinclair and Perry Bullard, and we're smoking a joint. And all of a sudden, uh oh, cop walks in. I went, oh no, and Sinclair just hands him the joint. Taking big tokes off him, I, I thought for sure. Uh -huh. I'm going to jail with John Sinclair. Right, right. So the cop was smoking. Yep, cop was walking down. Gotta so, love the Detroit Police Department. Yeah. So, so, so about this time, this is when the, all that crazy stuff was going on. With the you know, Sinclair's getting busted, the Panthers getting all crazy. Obviously, both of you guys were never really involved in like too heavy in the politics. I mean, you're, you're friends with these yeah. guys, but no. But I mean, exactly. what, what was that whole scene like for you guys? It must have been kind of scary when all the FBI's creeping around your friend's house and stuff. 
Well, you know? we, it, for me, it was, it was cool, to go, a place to go hang out, and I didn't, it was cool, he was preaching good things, mm -hmm. but when it got to the thing about violence, that was like, no way, man, it's right. just a little too scary. Even though there but was mostly a Mostly going there for the chicks. Right. There's, there were always women there, right. and uh, I'd always go and smoke drugs and talk to the band. Right. I like hanging out with Rob Tyner and, right. and watching him draw cartoons. Even more when the other guys are upstairs passing the rocket reducer around, <laughs> I'd, be down, I'd be downstairs watching Rob work on cartoons at his, at his easel. Wow. And then they had great round table meetings, where actually was a long table, like a night's table, uh -huh. where you could sit like 30, 40 people, mm -hmm. and they just talk every mm -hmm. night. For people that don't know, we're talking about the 1510 and 1520 mm -hmm. Hill Street. Uh, which is now, I think, Luther Co-op and something else. Stooges Wax Museum. Yeah. Stooges Wax Museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have no clue how many people have come here looking for that. And I've gotten Seriously. calls, and some of that lived there actually told me as recent as uh, somebody I know knows somebody that lived there. Mm -hmm. And they were still getting mail as of like a couple years ago. Sure, sure. And, and I've had people call up from Europe. People came from Europe to go I've to heard these stories. Yes, it's I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, just just uh, give a little background for that. Uh, Motor Booty Magazine at one point had, had published an article saying that there was a wax museum here in Ann Arbor at this house with that we're photos. talking about. But the, with photos, yeah, there was a, like a the actual jar of peanut butter from the Cincinnati Pop Festival <laughs> yeah. show that smeared out itself. The, it was a wax figure, and, and 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 if anybody's listening out there, don't come to Ann Arbor. It really doesn't exist. It's a a bunch of kid, bunch of kids living in the house, and they probably don't have anything good this month. But anyway, ain't no wax museum. It was that. So, so, but the Ann Arbor back then, though, is you know, it's real happening and stuff. But then you've got this real crazy environment of of, of all this like real heavy politics stuff, and a lot of violence going on in the streets, and with the Southview riots, it's like that. Yeah, well, we lived right by. We mm. were on Forest Court then. Oh, I, really? I was actually. It was just a walk around the corner. Yeah. Right. Forest Courthouse, mm -hmm. and the first night it was cool, people mm -hmm. just hanging out and stuff. But the next night, when the police were ready, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going, mm, this is ugly. I'm not gonna. And then I was at the old Whistle Stop restaurant, mm -hmm. and some dude started chucking uh, bricks at the cops. So you just tear gas, and you know, mm -hmm. have you ever been, even not directly tear gas, <laughs> but a good whiff of it, mm -hmm. it's bad. Mm -hmm. So people were running to hide in our house. No, no, wait a minute! Come on, they're gonna. Well, the cops chasing in your front people, door. People are running down there, and they go, "Those little stooges, the guys that sell the dope, living." Yeah. <laughs> Get me out of here! But it was it was fun though. Like I said, it was a us against them kind of feeling, and everyone was into helping each other and sharing. It was good. I wouldn't change time periods for anything. You were wonderful times. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, well, yeah, I mean, overall, I mean, the Stooges and the Rationals, neither were really very political, but uh, everybody, you know, was, you know, all, everybody was opposed to the war, everybody was into, like, all the new stuff. Nobody wanted to get drafted and die, yeah. yeah. Integration and, you know, you know, drugs and, you know, the sex and, you know, I mean, free love and, you know, every, <laughs> everything that the hippies brought to the table, like, you know, you know, was cool. So we were political, but not, we weren't organized like that. Mm -hmm. So, so about this time, you you guys started started working on your your, your second album. Just to jump jump into the next thing here, you you started working on the, uh, the Funhouse album. You started working on, on the, the material for that. After doing a lot of touring this time, well, that we learned to play. We just they put us on the road after the first album, uh -huh. and we continually, constantly played. And that's how we worked up that set in between, have a little time off, come up with a piece of music, uh -huh. develop it, and that whole album was actually. Uh, written while 
playing on the road mostly, mm -hmm. and that was the concept that Don Gallucci wanted was to capture that, which was cool because we were so well rehearsed we actually came off touring and right in the studio. And there's the yeah the the the, the box that here the, the 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 box that that I've, I've uh, started pulling. Here. This is something I wanted I wanted to bring up with you, Don. It says on the the box that you may not have really heard this or not, but the the uh, the the A side whatever the organ. Solo that's oh, yeah. down the street, whatever stuff. Bad Edmonds. What, what did what did you? How did you feel about that? Because obviously you guys were just you, know, you just put this really good record together, and also the company decides they would come in and like we didn't know about it. Organ. I, I did not know about it until Ben Edmonds this. told me because uh -huh. he had gotten an advanced copy of the box set on uh, cassette tape. Okay. And he goes, "Well, what's up with that?" And I'm going, "We figured out. Well, I figured out it, they were trying to see what it would sound like if we were the." Heavy metal doors or something, uh -huh. the punky doors. Was that a kind of annoying thing? For oh, you? I thought it was funny. It was. I, we, I didn't even know about it until like the last. Well, they, year. but at the time though, did you feel like there was? Because I don't like there was like some mention in the box that the while you're recording Funhouse, there was a two-way mirror supposedly inside yeah. of the doors. Danny Sugarman told me that story that right. Uh, Jim Morrison came in one night and checked out the band while we were re or recording. Right. So I'm like, I always say when I tell the story, of course, uh -huh. we're standing at the mirror. You know, looking at our hair, scratching whiteheads off our face, picking, checking our nose for boogers and stuff. And, and he's supposedly Jim Morrison. That's what Sugarman said. Right. That he was there. Some uh, stuff there from the Funhouse album. You guys went to L.A., recorded the Funhouse. First time in L.A. Right. It was... Good time. Oh, the very first day I was there, I love movies, so we're right there in Hollywood at mm -hmm. the good old Tropicana where the Doors actually had... Mm -hmm. Their offices were at the Trop. Right. And the great Duke's Diner, all these classic things. Uh -huh. So I got a little stoned, and I thought right. I'd take a walk about. Uh -huh. So I'm crossing the street, and uh, it's I have the light. I'm crossing, but I'm like, wow, I'm in Hollywood. Right. And a car, a limousine, slams on its brakes and right. misses me by three feet. Right. And the back window rolls down, and I hear this familiar voice go, you blanking... Asshole. Oh, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. And uh, yeah. I'm going, it's John Wayne. I'm going, John Wayne called me an effing a hole. <laughs> Yay! First day in Hollywood, John Wayne called me an effing a hole. Must be doing something right. Well, apparently, he must have, when he hit the brakes, they didn't wear seatbelts, he must have spilled his drink off. Yeah. Chris <laughs> from Maldon. Yeah. So you, you guys came back from, from uh, LA then, and you uh, came back here, and things kind of started changing around here. Like, like Detroit started getting kind of weird, and uh, the band started getting into some uh, well, it was stuff. the bad drugs were coming in, right? And drugs were becoming serious business. And can, the can drugs I, can I, got ugly. Can I ask you something real fast here too? Like, because a lot of times people really glorify a lot of that crap, and I know that a lot of times people may even look up to like eighty as far as something that was really glorified. And, and and I know on a personal level, I mean that you know like drugs really affected you in a lot of ways. Like I, I mean, to the kids out there that think. That kind of stuff is cool. I mean, we're not it's talking not, about smoking pot and that whole thing. We're talking about the serious crap. I mean, how would you say that? Uh, it's it, I lost. Not, not that we're going to make a community speech, well, or, you know. I yeah. know, but I lost everything I owned, mm -hmm. and the, I saw every people, my good friends, some die, mm -hmm. and saw the end of a band that I loved uh, disintegrate, mm -hmm. and it's terrible. I mean, the bad heroin pills, hard drugs. To really see somebody you love either see them die mm -hmm. or slowly see them about to die mm -hmm. it's not cool right it's on. totally not cool. right on, right it's, on it takes away all the creative fun it makes life unfun you don't 
have fun when you have to depend on something mm -hmm. other than food, air, and water mm -hmm. to keep you going to have do what you have to do and have a good time. So this pretty much came in between like uh, the, the band and the music eventually too. I know you guys eventually like the infamous story down at the Washington Bridge. You, you know, everybody uh, crashed the truck at the well, bridge. Well, was my brother driving on Reds. The, the Washington Street Bridge down by the Blind Pig we're, we're talking yeah. about here. Yeah, right. Well, we rented this truck and stipulation was, of course, no one can drive it, but mm -hmm. the guy, he got it from his father's rental truck place. Mm -hmm. And those guys, are, you know, why would you take Reds and drive to the show and play? <laughs> right. So my brother wanted to drive, he had no license, mm -hmm. and they went under the bridge and didn't make it. So that pretty much was like, you guys destroy their stuff, Now it's kind of like, like the... The end for a while. Well, the equipment wasn't right. the equipment wasn't hurt, but right. the truck was totaled. Right. We missed the show that night at the East Town Theater. It was a Friday night, mm -hmm. but we did play on Saturday. Mm -hmm. But we used my brother was injured too badly to play, so we used mm -hmm. Steve McKay on drums. Wow! So that afternoon, wow. Steve came over with not a drum set. We had no drum set. He would just you know tap out <laughs> as I played the tunes with the little practice amp. He just tap them out on his, his uh, legs, you know. Right, right. So when he actually got on stage to play, uh -huh. he freaked. His arms become, you know, when you, you ever played the drums and you're stiff or sure. you're stiffen uh -huh. up, he just could not coordinate. And then they put the spotlight right on him. His <laughs> right. face is beat red. And it's just the very first 10, you know, he bars into the first song. It's totally floundering. And he goes back and goes, one, two, three. And he finally goes, stop, 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 Steve. Everybody stop. Oh, my God. And then he goes, one, two. So we did like three songs. But poor Steve was so red-faced and embarrassed, he wouldn't accept his pay. We made him take it. We made him take his money. Take it. So, so... Uh, we we got a lot of, like a short amount of time. So we might okay. precise. I want to talk about all the other stuff you've done besides the Stooges there. But uh, you you guys kind of like um, kind of a breakup at one point, and then uh, like uh, things kind of fell apart. And well, that, it transferred onto the whole right, different thing. After, after um, a lot of people already know this, so I maybe we'll after give a Fun House yeah. it went on to Raw Power. What happened? Iggy just once again had to quit playing to clean up his act. Right. So he roamed around. He happened to be in New York, bumming around to try to get something going. When he ran into David Bowie, who was supposedly a fan of his, uh -huh. Bowie took him to meet Tony DeFreeze. They had lunch. Yeah. Tony signed him. The next day, he took them to CBS to Clive Davies, got him a, a deal with CBS Columbia, and then they went on to England. Right. And I didn't even know any of this was happening until right. I ran into right. uh, Iggy at a party at, at Morgan Sound on Morgan Road, the old SRC studio. Mm -hmm. He just casually comes up to me and goes, Oh, by the way, I got a record deal, and James and I are going to England next week. Mm -hmm. Bye. Right. <laughs> Why you? But then, of course, three months later. Well, yeah, he yeah. calls up uh, three months later, going, "Well, we auditioned a hundred bass players and drummers, and no one's good enough. So, do you want to play?" Right. Well, half they exhausted everything they could think of. Right. Sent for right. the two bombs. <laughs> yeah. So you guys went over and you did the sessions for. And it was fun. Uh, got to stay power. for nine months. Uh -huh. Rehearse, rehearse, did that. And you you moved over to, to, to bass at this point. This is kind of a change for you. Well, yeah. You know? Well, the idea was I'd go back eventually, but they couldn't find a bass player. And I always enjoyed playing bass, right. and Iggy liked my bass playing. Right. So I'm going, yeah, I'll do that for a while. And I'm glad uh -huh. I did. I got to do it and get it documented, uh -huh. if you can hear it on the record. Yeah, right, of course. At times, course. if you can quite hear it. Right. How um, do you, and, and real briefly, too, I mean, how do you feel with the mix in there? Because obviously that's been a big... The first time we heard the mix in L.A., mm -hmm. uh, we all hated it. And Iggy just says, well, it's this or another six months, so it's this. We always 
you know, there's no drums. <clears throat> the drums got messed with, uh -huh. a bass, you know, plenty of guitar and vocals. But as Don Fleming said, the producer and uh, used to be in the band Gumball, he goes, just wait till you hear that Iggy mix of Raw Power. You'll be going, boy, I love that Bowie <laughs> mix of Raw Power. <laughs> so, a few, few more shows. And you well, actually, back. we it was fun being in England for nine months. Had a great time. Also having Angie Bowie help me spend some of David's money on expensive restaurants <laughs> and nightclubbing. And we, we wound up coming back to uh, uh, Ann Arbor to wait to go to L.A. And once we got to L.A., they just put us up, my brother and myself, at the Hyatt House, the, the Riot House on Sunset Strip. They pretty much kept us under wraps, but we rehearsed, 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 rehearsed. We only played one show in England, the King's Cross Cinema, mm -hmm. and which that is, one is show at the show Port, also. I mean, Port Auditorium of the, in Detroit. And that's supposed, it's supposed to be the, the, the one show in England, too, is like a, a pretty infamous show for a lot of people that were pretty influenced by the whole show and gone on to I didn't realize those, those many the people, the musicians that were there that night or anything. Well, I don't think they were there even all that musicians yeah, yet, the, really. Well, you know? yeah, sorry, they, yeah. Weren't, they weren't them. Right? Yeah, right, right. How, how does that make you feel, though? When you, I mean, because obviously a lot of that you know, like like uh, the whole punk rock thing and stuff, and a lot, even to what's going on this day, is all from a credit to you, your work and stuff. And how does it make you feel? Poor. No. <laughs> no, Besides the monetary well, reasons. Um, no, it does make me feel really good, and I'm uh, glad that I, I got to do that, and that's great. It really is a satisfying mm -hmm. feeling. But does it make you, I mean, does it make you bitter, though, in a way? No. Or does it make you, I mean, how do you... You know, do you think in the end it all, it'll all write itself? Right? Yeah, yeah. Like 200 years down the road, like Shakespeare right. was. Well, if Teddy Copper, I think like Shakespeare never right. had a single thing. Well, published. I just don't want to be Van Gogh. Right. Sold one painting his whole life, then when he dies, his paintings go for right. $60 million. Right, right. Well, right. other than that monetary aspect, exactly. Right, right. But finally, people like uh, Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr., the Monster mm -hmm. Magnet dudes, mm -hmm. they're starting to come out and offer some playing and some mm -hmm. help and we, mm -hmm. we can do this and we can do that because mm -hmm. you were one of my guitar heroes and they always mentioned my name mm -hmm. in their interviews and stuff so what did you start thinking when, when the Sex Pistols was first coming out and stuff and that whole thing and they were like you know I mean you know they're attributing a lot of this to you guys and that whole thing the cover and Stooges songs and, and that's well I say rock on because right. if they get going and they say stuff it always drags helps other people uh -huh. and drags along the old guys like uh the uh, English rock stars did with the old blues musicians mm -hmm. and the old rock musicians, maybe bringing Chuck Berry back, especially the old blues guys with the Yardbirds and stuff, mm -hmm. and giving them a second shot around, mm -hmm. which is very cool. Mm -hmm. So after after the Stooges uh, finally broke up, uh, you you went on to do uh, some other work for a while. You you first started out with uh, New Order, is that correct? Uh, yeah, okay. I stayed in L.A. after the Iggy quit for the third or fourth time. Right and got Dennis Thompson out there, and we started the band The New Order, but we picked the wrong place, or not, the, well, actually kind of the wrong place also, at the mm -hmm. wrong time. Mm -hmm. It was all into uh, disco, mm -hmm. and that hard rock stuff, sure. just no one was buying it. Kind of like now with the techno thing, right? So we, exactly. got, we were in the wrong time period, once again, right. ahead or behind, it seems right. to be our, my problem. Right. <laughs> Either ahead or behind, I can't quite <laughs> right. get in the groove. And uh, we just ran that in the ground. Uh, uh -huh. um, nobody wanted it, so we actually had a I found out from Kim Foley we had a possible deal, but the record company didn't like the guy who said he was our manager and he wasn't really. And we had problems with the singer taking drugs once again. Qualoods mm. and Angel Dust. Rock and roll. And blowing a big show where booking agents and Mercury Records were there to see us. But uh, he right. blew that for us and finally it just disintegrated and guys went away. So and you, then I came back to Michigan mm -hmm. and I found uh, this guy kept bugging me to jam with him. And, 
turned out to be a guy who was in Destroy All Monsters. Kerry Lauren was it? Yes, okay. and I met Niagara, and then that band was more of a freeform kind of noise and weird band. And I said, well, if I'm going to be in it, I want to be a rock band. Michael Davis just got out of jail. Yay! <laughs> so I got Michael to play bass uh -huh. and got Rob King, who was a good, great rock drummer, mm -hmm. and turned it into the more contemporary rock. Because more of you are probably familiar with, with the, the, the newer version of his drum. Mm -hmm. You had a couple of uh, singles out at, at the time and stuff, and but uh, now people are starting to know a little more about the early Destroy Monsters also and stuff. So it's kind of weird, like, you know, when you look at the two bands, they're kind of, I mean, even though there's this somewhat of a similar... Well, they know. used to play, the early ones was Mike Kelly, who became the performance artist and painter, mm -hmm. you know, Mike Kelly. Of course. He, uh, that's why they're being known again, because he's very popular. Right. But they were just, they just played uh, parties. They never really played. Right. They were a noise band that just got together a bunch of art students to have some extra fun. They mm -hmm. couldn't really play. Mm -hmm. So he's out now doing stuff, I guess... He does it in Japan. Mm -hmm. I'm going not the rock version, but the, right, right, their right. versions. Like, so Destroy All Monsters was was around for a while. You guys, a long time actually. 19, pretty much rocking from 70, late 77, 78. Uh -huh. Finally broke up in 85 when I did a, a motion picture, The Carrier. Where, where's Where's Scott? I want to get, get Scott in the bathroom. Is, bathroom. He, is he back? Because I want to get him talking about uh, getting Jeremy chances. Tell us about movies. Well, that's what broke up yeah. the Destroy All Monsters, really? is uh, I got into this movie thing. I auditioned right. for this part, right. and I was gone for three months, uh -huh. and everyone kind of got mad at me. Uh -huh. And, uh, well, I came back, and everyone had kind of dispersed. Right. So that went on to the next phase, which, which was, was the, the, uh, Niagara had done this uh, Dark Carnival thing, which was just a specialty band. Uh -huh. They just do a couple, three, four shows a year, uh -huh. and that became a regular band. Mm -hmm. So that was the next phase. Finally, they bugged me to play, bugged me, and I said, well, I'll do it if you make it more regular. I'm going to try to do something with this. Mm -hmm. And we did, and that, once again, mm -hmm. that didn't really take off. And right. Now you're hearing, now that it's gone, people are starting to listen, maybe care a little bit more. Now that it's gone, now the word is out. Well, right? like Phil from Monster Magnet says, the people are starting to get into Destroy All Monsters, the rock version mm -hmm. now more. Mm -hmm. Scott, Scott Morgan's back. We want to here. talk to you. Yeah, we want we want to talk about fact, We were just talking about Destroy All Monsters, and we were talking about back uh, back in the day because you're you're in Sonic's Rendezvous. We used to play with at them at the same time. You guys open up a lot second of times. chance a lot. Of what, what were those days like for you guys all together and stuff? You know, lots of fun nights. Oh yeah, I mean the music was good. We never really made any money, at least not the Sonic Rendezvous. That's not what it was about, right? Obviously. No, no, yeah. it was about the music. Yeah. We were uh, Sonic Rendezvous bands. When I look at the videos, it, we were like shoegazers, basically. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> After yeah. watching the Stooges of the Five or even the Rationals, we just sort of stood there and played. It's like we we're in the studio or something. It's amazing because it's so high energy too. You expect you got to be flying around like yeah. you know, like like you know, the head down the head and well, stuff. Well, we didn't open up for them. Um, I would always go and see him play because uh -huh, uh -huh. it was a favorite, of course. One of my favorite guys, really, a bro. Uh -huh. And it was a great band. Right I still, I still sing some of the songs in the shower. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There's a rumor that you guys both shared a practice space at one point over the Big City Bakery. Is that a rumor? Or is that not true? I'm trying to get all the myths dispersed. Oh, tonight. oh, you mean on uh, Miller? Yeah. Yeah. That was the cult hero space. Yeah. Oh, okay, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I used to go and hang out there. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I heard a rumor that you guys would all. It was a nice place. Yeah, right. they had that. Well, actually, I we 
Destroy All Monsters rehearsed on in their stage. They had that stage downstairs, and they lived upstairs on Miller and Spring. Yeah, oh, okay. Great. Well, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was a great rehearsal space. I don't think the neighbors liked those guys. The, <laughs> the, the, the knights didn't like the rowdy dudes. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So boing. Right, right. What was it? so Ann Arbor at that point? It was like late seventies, punk had broken. You guys were doing your things. So what was it like though? Because I know there was. I've heard like uh, different interviews before. So there's like a lot of folk music was going on. And, Seemed like things are kind of starting to fall apart. People right. are starting to drift away. Uh -huh. To go to LA or go to other towns, uh -huh. at least the crowd I hung in, or they just get so absorbed into Ann Arbor, they disappear. <laughs> yeah, you know how you tend to get absorbed into yeah. Ann Arbor. Whatever yeah. happened to him? Well, I saw him. He's walking down on Washington Street two years ago. <laughs> five years later, yeah, there he is. Oh, he's, yeah. in the he's driving a cab. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of times, I've seen a lot of old friends. They're cab drivers. Yeah, uh, amazing. The scene like I remember was that it was like the second chance, at least, was like cover bands. Right. And they would come in, they'd play Thursday through Sunday, and they'd make all the money. That's right. Uh, they'd make like 2000 bucks. Kind of like, kind of like, kinda like oh, it's I can't say it on the air. Toby <laughs> Red, Muggsy. I mean, they'd. Toby Red, which is Chad Smith's band. Chad mm -hmm. Smith in, uh, is the it, drummer it, it, for. Uh, Pete Bankard being in Muggsy. Chili Peppers now. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, Pete, really? Yeah, really? Pete Bankard being in Muggsy. They'd make like Pete's going, yeah, you know, I was making like a thousand dollars a week, man. <laughs> I'd be making a hundred dollars a month, man. And uh, you know, and probably Stooges, but I know Sonic Carnival band, we'd, we'd be lucky to make two hundred bucks, like you know, on a Tuesday or something mm -hmm. like that. Well, I got while we get a car would give us a Monday night, and usually we'd go overboard with opening acts, and PAs sometimes would be very expensive. So we'd make some money, but after doling out the. You know, three hundred fifty bucks to the PA, paying your roadies, whatever, paying mm -hmm. the opening band a hundred bucks a piece or whatever. You know, you wind up with a couple hundred bucks. So you guys were like, you guys weren't even like doing this like big, amazing like like you got like like you guys are like huge or something. You were just kind of like basically surviving. Monday, Tuesday nights, surviving. It paid the rent in my apartment. It kept, oh, that's pretty amazing. Kept me in beer and cigarettes. You guys have both in bands, you know, at, at, at early points and then later points is also where it's been. Now it's being. Discovered or whatever and stuff. I mean, it, by the time that you would think that, like, you know, we, you know, guys like us, you know, we're in our thirties, whatever, you know, or you know, young twenties to thirties. So we hear it now. We're like, God, it must have been like fucking huge, huge back then and stuff. <laughs> and uh, you know, obviously, but you're telling me now that you guys were playing Monday, Tuesday nights. Yeah. Wow. No respect. No, no, no respect. respect. No yeah, respect. Muggsy, Muggsy gets Friday and Saturday nights. Something's never changed. Something's never changed. Sunday night or something like that. Well, Pete's going, yeah, I'm making $1,000 this weekend. And where's wow. Muggsy now? Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, they were playing covers. Mm -hmm. They were playing yeah. with exactly what was on the radio at the time. Yep. Mm -hmm. Kind of like now. And we were doing original tunes and... You know, they would throw in a couple originals, you know, just so they could say that they were a real band, you know, but, <laughs> but you, know, they, now. you know, they weren't that great, and they sounded like the covers, and, right. you know. So they um, do weddings and bar mitzvahs now? Right. I don't know where they are now. So why, why do you, I've, I've got two musicians in this room, and I, again, you know, I, I hate saying it in front of you guys and all, but, but I, I got two musicians in this room that have the strongest integrity of any musician I've met, in, you know, in my entire lifetime. Neither one of you guys have ever sold out at all, in any extreme at all. You've both been true to your form. Even now, you're, you're still doing something well, that's true to I'll heart. Use, I'll use Wayne Kramer's line. Right. I, I put it in a song, but right. uh, we tried to sell out. Nobody was buying. <laughs> yeah. Nobody was buying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, I jam with but. the Backstreet Boys now if they pay me, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> But still, though, I mean, even a lot of stuff, I mean, you could have changed the whole thing. I mean, like, obviously, you, you still... 
you've still kept to, to you know some of the original form. You've, you've never gone overboard and tried right. to cut off your past to deny your past just and just can't go bubblegum. Can't do it. Mm. Yeah, it's, it goes against the grain for me. Yeah, right. it's just like uh, that robot in uh, Forbidden Planet. It's built in. I'll self-destruct if I go against my orders. Right put in my what's inside of me. Beautiful thing, man. Beautiful thing. Let's hear. Let's hear a project right now, real fast. This is this is a new race. This is something you did with with uh, someone you worked with before, obviously. Dennis Tech. Dennis Tech. Yeah. yeah. Dennis Tech. Dennis, Dennis Tech. We sat in. Yeah. Dennis Tech sat in with uh, the Rendezvous Band reunion, uh, the Majestic, a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, Dennis Townsend played with us uh, when we did Dodge Main. Uh, yeah. Yep. Dennis Townsend. Yep. And Two of uh, my that, that was that was an amazing show. That we down Novi. Uh, or yeah. Yeah. The library, the, the library, the library, the library has never show. been the same since. Love that never show. Never will be again either. So yeah. we, you, you did some uh, Dennis Tech, who was in Radio Bourbon. You did a project with him and, and uh, a couple of guys from from that and and uh, was Thompson a uh, new he, race. Uh, he asked for my brother, but my brother didn't go, so Thompson was glad to go. Mm -hmm. Thompson and I went down under, and it was Dennis Tech, Rob Younger, and Warwick Gilbert who played bass. Right on. And then Chris Maswack would come and do a couple shows. And Pip Hoyle played keyboards when he wasn't a doctor, and he was a doctor also down there. Uh -huh. He would come really? and do a couple shows. Wow! So I had a great time. Love Australia. If you can go, go. It's great. Let's get thanks for coming down. My pleasure. And and we're also now going to talk about some of the stuff you've done recently. Now we uh, we're going to play a couple things coming up here. One thing, uh, you, you were involved in the, the Wild Rats for the Velvet Goldmine movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, you want to talk about that for a little bit? Well, I got a call from Don Fleming. He had produced Destroy All or uh, Dark Carnival uh, CD. And he goes, well, gee, I put together this band. I got this job to do like a Stooge-type band for this movie, Velvet Goldmine. I've got Mike Watt, and I've got uh, Thurston Moore and Steve Shelley. We were looking for a Ron Ashton-type guitar player. And then he went, duh, why don't I ask Ron? He's not doing anything. So the powers that be said it was cool. So I went and did a couple songs for the record, but in the meantime, he took good advantage of the time, and we did them. Just ran tape on a bunch of stuff. And I liked the lineup so well, I kept saying, you got to bug the record company to, um, let's make a record. Mm -hmm. So sure enough, a year later, we went back and did a whole album's worth of stuff with the same lineup of guys, um, plus Sean Lennon, John Lennon's son. He played some electronics. Mm -hmm. We did mm -hmm. some jams, so we, we filled up 52 reels of tape. Right on, right on. So, so there's enough to make three records. Do so you think we'll see see this come light of well, day? Well, supposedly yeah. uh, this is going to come out on Thurston Moore's label, uh -huh. Static, Static Peace. Static Peace, right on. And was waiting any time. I mean, he's been so busy. Apparently, they're it's in the process of getting put together. Now. How did you feel with the Volvo Goldmine? Because I know a lot of people were kind of like were hoping it was be more of a. A Stooges story, maybe a little more well, realistic, and it's kind of like a whole fantasy thing. Well, that's what you know? Todd Haynes wanted, and that's the kind of stuff Todd directs. But I thought he chose well in the cast, and there were moments that were, you know, frightfully close to reality. Okay. We're seeing the actress like who played supposedly Angie Bowie. Uh -huh. A lot of those things actually did happen. Really? Of course, he tended to throw it in fantasy, not to get sued or whatever. So, right on. You gotta. It, I liked it. I went and saw it at. Tribeca Studios, which is Robert De Niro and Scorsese. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, right. Private, big, huge chairs. Uh -huh. And I'm sitting next to this guy, and I'm going, gee, I don't want to sit next to anybody. Uh -huh. I want to watch this by myself. So I get up and move from this guy, and he kind of looks at me like, uh -huh. oh, hey, dude. Uh -huh. It was uh, what Mark from the, what's that band? Mike, uh, Mike D. 
Beastie Boys. From the Beastie Boys. Oh, right, right, yeah. Like the Beastie Boys. Oh, geez, sorry, man. <laughs> but you run it. Did I stink or something? You got up and what moved away from me. Somebody, <laughs> I said, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't know who you were. And I just like to see the be by myself. And, right. and it's because Mike Watts right behind me goes, hey, that didn't happen. So I go, I can't wait for a while a little bit, too. So, <laughs> So we got some of this wild rats. If I want to talk, I think also you you also did some uh, movies at some point. I, I, I want to bring you back another time. Yeah, I was, but uh, just so people know, if they see it on TV, that you're in oh mosquito mosquito. They show it on USA at the late night or the Saturday afternoon movies. Right, a gutter. Did you get my name in the TV guy? Right, I've seen it actually. Yeah, yeah. So Leatherface and Stooge. Right. So that's our joke. I talk to Gutter all the time. So, so you've ever seen Mosquito on TV? Like, like sit down and watch it. It also has Mike Hart and Thrall. Yeah, Mike Hart's in it. Yeah, and yeah, Kenny yeah. Mungwamp's in it too. Right on, right on, right on. And Margaret from the And Margaret, and Margaret from Margaret the Dollar is naked in it. I, I didn't realize that until the other day. I didn't know about that. I'm like, thanks, Scott Morgan, for coming in. Yeah. Stay with us. He's on his way out the door here. I think he's going out for a stiff one. He's going bar. out for a splash. Yeah, and I think I might be down there in a couple minutes of the water and hold myself, so save me some grass there. And, uh, and, 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 and I also, I'd also like to thank Dara, because Dara really helped a lot with, with, with hooking us up there. Dara. You mean Dara? Dara, Dara. <laughs> I don't know your damn name. I just work with you. Dara. <laughs> Dara, Dara, sorry. Just don't call me Rastafari, I guess. <laughs> so, and, 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 and everybody else in the studio for, for hanging out and keeping things in orderly fashion and stuff. But most of all, I'd like to thank Ron, one of my, my biggest heroes and, 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 and a great guest. Thank you. And, and, I had a good time, and like I said, I'll be back. When I come back from Texas, yeah. I'll bring you the biggest cowboy hat, the biggest yeah. cowboy hat, yeah. the biggest steak you've ever seen in that's your right. life. That's right. That's right. Give us the story. You're going down to South by Southwest? Yeah, to, deal? to play with Jay Maskus and the Fog. I'm in. And Mike Watt. Right on. And Mike and Watt. Watt, Watt Fog featuring Mike Watt. So you go down, are you doing that show? Are you doing any other stuff down south? Uh, no, happening? but hopefully something good will come up. I might go on tour and play more shows with them. Right, and hopefully hook something up so I can get out there. Because you just did this thing, you know, refresh people's memory. You did this thing at the Pig a few months back there, where you did the uh, um, um, uh, Jay Mask came to town with Mike White and all that, and then you came and stepped in for some songs, and it was really shredding. It was really great time. And, and then, so you formed a little uh, coalition again after this. Say, let's it's so much fun. Let's go do yep. this. Full time. And they called me up. I said, Hey, anytime you want to play, and I blew they called says, How would you like to come to Texas? Watt calls me up. Okay. Well, shit, man. Sounds good, man. So, okay, things get a popping, get on the road again, and I'll I'll be back. The way it should be, the way it should be. Well, good luck in Texas. All right, thank and, you. And, and, and like I said, come on back when you're back and give us you know, the, the lowdown. Tell stories. And, and once again, thank you so much, man. It's been, well, it's my been, pleasure. It's been I had a great, good time. man. It's really great to have you down thank here. Thank you, John. Ladies and gentlemen, Ron Ashton, ladies and gentlemen. Good night, and I'm on. Yeah. Watt for Pedro Show. That was John Griffin interviewing Ron Ashton. February 27, 2001, WCBN, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Thanks again, John. And uh, miss you much, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, next week I'm going to be playing your bass parts. Uh, it's the end of the second hour, October 31, 2009. Watt from Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour three. October 31st, 2009. Happy Halloween. It's the third hour of the Watt from Pedro Show.
Watt from Pedro Show. Uh, start off the third hour with um, Flatter by Sandy Yang. Played with Tom Watson. Tom Watson had a band with her called uh, The Best of Everything, or Best of All, or something. Sorry, I can't remember right. But she also played with Tom in the Red Crayola. She's on a couple Red Crayola albums. And then we heard a couple songs from Captain Beefheart. This is from a re-released bootleg. I don't know. Better tapes were found. Better ways of making things sound better. But the Shiny Beast stuff and all that. And there's two early versions. There's a great song on Dock at the Raider Station called Dirty Blue Jean. And I had an, an earlier instrumental version from some co- uh, compilation thing. But here's two other ones. And, and in fact, one of these has some things that are very close to the one that, you know, made a, uh, what do you say, legitimate release. But you can hear words in both of these. And you hear words, too, that weren't in the final version. But that was a great song. I got to do a version of that with uh, Nels Klein. Michael Preusner is very difficult. It's on some uh, Beefheart tribute record. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe it's entitled one of his songs or something. But I did it uh, during the Ball Hugger Tugboat sessions. Man, that was a tough song to learn. But we got it. Well, Nels Klein, he can learn everything. Anything. Yeah. Everything. Uh, I get to play with him again in end of the year in Tokyo. And then make a, a second brother-sister-daughter album with him. Uh, after Beefheart, we heard Recession War Blues by Charlie Noakes, who's a bass player uh, from England. But there's him doing some blues, and everybody knows that's what big part of, no matter how weird Beefheart is, it's all about the blues. And then we heard The Roof Blew Off, Open Up, by the Cohen Brothers, uh, another band from England. And, uh, yeah, Played a night with Pete and Jer. And then again, Monday, opening up for Shonen Knife, which is a, a lady band from uh, Japan. Came over early in the late 80s, first time. One of the first bands from over there from their punk scene. And uh, Echo Park, the Echo, I think. Which used to be... Uh, Nyard, I think it still says Nyard on the outside. It was like a Guatemalan dance club, nightclub. I played a benefit there once when it was still called Nyard. Is that on Sunset or? And yeah, yeah, okay. but not the Hollywood part, way east in Echo Park. Um, and then I go away. I go to Sao Paulo, like I was uh, saying at the end of that interview there. Uh, First gig for this new lineup of Iggy and the Stooges, James Williamson, and of course uh, Scotty Sound on drums, Brother Steve on the sax. And we just had some more practices. And uh, we're going to try it out November 7th, Sao Paulo, something called uh, Planeta Terra Festival. And I think what you were seeing was a listing for May. Uh, second and third for uh, 
playing all of raw power in London at Barry yeah. Hogan's All Tomorrow Party Don't Look Back oh, series. Okay. Yeah. Because your Who page breaks it down by, by your project. Yeah, but that's not until May. I got you. And there's probably gigs before that. Yeah. Have you played Brazil before? Yeah, with Stooges. Yeah. And another band on the bill is Sonic Youth. All and right. Sonic Youth was on that gig a couple years ago, too. Yeah. So... Lee's coming back. He just did three or four gigs with them, but he had broken his wrist, and they had to postpone a lot of gigs. Yeah. I remember Thurston had a book with the tunings in it. Yeah. I saw him at the anti-club, yeah. They don't do like nails where you just move the fingers. They actually tune the guitars different, so they needed them. And some of them, different kinds of string setups. And I remember one of them only had like four. It wasn't a bass, it was a guitar. And then the there was a space, two strings, a space and two strings, and... Thurston had a screwdriver in there and beating with a drumstick. They were so... I remember seeing them and I told D. Boone, because I thought Minutemen was trying some adventure stuff and I said, man, these guys make us look like Chuck Berry. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was so wild, you know. And then I get to meet Thurston and talking to him about Richard Hell. He saw the Voidoids a bunch of times and, you know, I never got to see him. And it's just all kinds. Thurston's a music guy, man. An art guy and just everything. Very yeah. interesting person. Yeah, great man. Uh, what about the Blue Oyster Cult? <laughs> I just like uh, You had your book with your pictures. You put, oh, well, put them yeah. away. Yeah, well. You got pictures here. from... They played in 1980 at the Dancing Waters as Soft White Underbelly, which was a name they had before Blue Oyster Cult. But it wasn't their first name. Stock Forest Group was an early name, but I think they even had a name before that. Yeah. But uh, and did you take those yourself? Oh, yeah, Me and D. Boom were at that gig. So were a lot of the Black Flag guys. Sorry, here. I, just and it, it, to... I hadn't seen them for years, maybe four or five years, and saw them again. It was like, whoa. These are some pictures of a gig that you were at. Which was the brain surgeons at the coconut teaser, yeah, yeah, but yeah. unfortunately, I didn't get you in there. Well, that's not dancing waters. But uh, it's not even called the teaser anymore. I don't know what it's called? Yeah. You remember when Albert would take his sticks and he'd come through the audience yeah. playing on everybody's built-in bottles? Yeah, entertaining, you know. But I uh, can't remember. Uh, I don't think there was any tables up for BOC and dancing waters. Yeah. <laughs> And anyway, yeah. I remember he had a blinky bow tie on. Yeah, (laughs) that's what you were saying. And when I said that to him, because I got to be friends with him years later, and I didn't know it at the time, but he was drumming at that gig. Because he had left, and then they brought him back, I guess, for that tour. I got all sorts of stuff in this book. You know, I've talked about Bola before, and uh, him and his... uh, Bola is the guy uh, who ran the fan club. Does he still do that? No, he's kind of passed the reins over to a, a fellow named Ralph that does the Hot Rails to Hull website dot com. But I thought you might think these were interesting. Bola and his ex-wife Melanie Melny. Yeah, I know more than final. That's a song on uh, Agents of Fortune. Well, they actually this was the name of their little publication to keep in with the fans. You know, I picked yeah. up a business card it said BOC fans, and this is back in the. Early 90s, I was at a, one of their gigs at the Strand in Redondo. Yeah, but Morning Final still, uh, that's well, in the it's 70s. A, it's, but that's a song. No, yeah. th- these are little booklets that he and his wife would Xerox. 
they named the name of their little magazine to keep in touch with the fans. You'd sign up and they'd mail you their little Xerox magazines. This is before the internet. Well, did you get the lyrics? Oh, yeah. In the old days in the 70s, they'd be on this computer paper, green and white striped stuff. And Ebola actually went extensively. Oh, yeah, but this is not... What happened was they'd say for lyrics on the album covers, you'd send in and this printout would come. Yeah. And they weren't in lines. Yeah. It was just... Yeah. They'd go to the margin, go to the next, go to the margin. I did not mail away. It was like those. a teletype. Yeah, I had them. I don't have them now like an idiot, yeah. but I had them. Because it's very hard to tell what they were singing. Especially the first album. Well, any of them. The, like the mummy's inscription in the Batwing Tongue. I mean, once you read that, okay. But if yeah. you'd ever read it before, you can't believe that's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah, Transmaniacon MC has all these... Yeah. yeah. The, the manager wrote a lot of the lyrics, and they just yeah. pushed them in there. Richard uh, Meltzer Perlman. wrote for him. He would write smaller words, but yeah. Perlman had no idea of, or maybe it was to just give him a tough yeah. uh, a chore to do because he, these, these multi-syllable words, you know, crazy. Yeah, well, it was his concept. Like, uh, oh, who was the guy behind the Sex Pistols? He had it all planned out. For Malcolm him. McLaren. Yeah, McLaren. Yeah. And Sandy, you know, before he even met half the guys, he just had this idea, you know. And uh, you know, he went to school with them. Yeah, yeah, Stony. Meltzer Brook, too. Yeah, Long Stony. Island. S U N Y. Yeah. Yeah. Here's some more music.
Shut 
She's friend of the band and She's stuff. A girlfriend of one of them. It was Albert, yeah, for a little while. Some kind of New yeah. York scene of yeah, early rock. on, and they liked her writing a lot. She she flowed them a few, as you say, I'm quoting you now all the time. A few songs. The only know. one I know is Tattoo Love Vampires. <laughs> yeah, it's on uh, Agents of Fortune. Yeah, but there's a couple songs with uh, Patty Smith. Yeah, Vera Gemini, Revenger, Albert did. Yeah. I saw Patty do that with with them, and I just wrote. On the oh, I should I should say who we played. We just heard uh, <laughs> that was Indiana Man by Community Currency, and before that, Certifiable by Signals, uh, Burn Baby Doll by Gahana, and we start off with Your Lamplight by Boy in Sleep. Some good stuff, man. These cats. Uh, from all around the world, Indiana, uh, Switzerland. Can I can I England. ask you? You know, like last week's show was just. I mean, you were there was that father and son group from. Uh, you may not may not. Yeah, yeah, they're from uh, but, Joshua Tree. But uh, yeah, no, I try to find music from all over, and uh, that's interesting to me. And uh, cause there's a lot of people doing stuff. It's yeah. it's different than when I was younger. I think music was a smaller circle of people doing. Yeah, people give go. me stuff yeah. at gigs. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I get it all different kinds of ways. Yeah, but yeah, this yeah, other yeah, stuff, yeah. this homebrew I'm into.
Water Under Mouse by Giant Face. And an Astronaut's Nightmare by the Korean Noise Research. Then Peak Experience by Scotch Wiggly Band. And finally Lookout by Super Synth Modulation. Yeah, people going for it. Yeah. Okay, uh, October 31st, 2009, Waffle Pedro Show. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. Wear them costume proudly and admit it. Keep your powder dry.